Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles and return to the Gospel of Luke. As we jump into that Word, to be able to be taught as we continue our study of this Gospel. Appreciate Ted filling in last week while I was in Texas. And I mentioned to you as I was heading out that I wasn't asking you to pray for me because I knew I was going into warmer weather and I would pray for you, but when I arrived there, there was an ice storm. That first morning, I got up to walk to go teach where I was teaching in the classroom, and a big old chunk of ice slid off a palm tree and hit me in the head, and, and, and I thought, who's praying for me there in DeKalb? It's Chalgren, isn't it? <laughs> so, it was a good week there. It was um, wonderful to teach down in the school, uh, be with about 30 or so students that desire to uh, be missionaries, and we had a great time learning how to teach the book of Genesis in a cross-cultural context, and great time with Ron and Jen. They are getting excited about their trip to Canada. A couple weeks, they'll be heading up to Cat Lake. You could look at it online. I would encourage you to go just, just search Cat Lake, and you'll see the pictures and the places where they're going. Uh, uh, a reserve. They're gonna. They'll be flying in there, Lord willing, and uh, spending a couple weeks there. And uh, it's exciting how God's opening that door. But please pray for them. There's some danger in the journey, and and it's really cold. And and they're bringing their kid. You're bringing uh, Owen along, and and the other couples coming with their child. So just continue to pray for them in that process, and and uh, because it's it's exciting to see how the Lord is using, uh, choosing to use us in this process of. Of doing missionary work there. So, but why don't I just go before the Lord here before we jump into our study? Let's pray together. Father, I am just grateful for your word. I'm grateful for being good, providing all that we need in Christ. Lord, help us not to find our comfort in this world, in weather, or in events, or in money, or in things. God, just please. Allow us to, to love Christ and to be satisfied in Him. Lord, that is what makes for peace. And help us to see that. Lord, as we see His Lordship today, may that just ground us all. And those that uh, have come in here worried or anxious or angry or upset or discouraged, when they, may they see the glory of Christ and may all that melt away, that they might find their hope and encouragement in Him. Help us now to see your word so that we might live according to it. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> you know, when I, uh, years, a little over 20 some odd years ago, 25 years ago, when I started in ministry, started as a youth pastor, and, uh, and when I uh, first started working, I worked with, as some of you know, Don Dumbacher, and, uh, and, and he was the youth pastor and I was his assistant, and uh, and. When uh, we started, there were only five kids in the youth ministry. And I remember sitting there with, with Don saying, um, man, five kids, that's, it's hard to do things with five kids. You know, it's hard. You can't get to a camp because you, you can't afford it. You're not bringing enough kids along. And, and we used to sit there and say, wouldn't it be great the day God provides, you know, a, a few more kids so that we could actually go do something? So we're not always kind of latching on to other youth groups and other events and and so we, uh, I would dream about that. Like, wouldn't it be great that day when God would provide that and everything would be great? And, 
And then uh, over time, the Lord started bringing people into the youth ministry. We had a good group of like, let's say, 20 kids or so. And it was like the perfect amount. It's the perfect amount. So like it was enough so that song time wasn't just, you know, five kids mumbling, but they were actually singing and, and, uh, and we could go do something and, and, uh, and you could pretty much just one van and one car, get everybody everywhere you need to go. But then the Lord saw fit to bring a few more kids. And the next thing you know, it's 30 kids and 35 kids and 40 kids and 50 kids. And now it's a headache to bring kids somewhere. Right? And, and in the midst of that, there's a few kids that, that you know, didn't find joy in, in obeying their leaders. And so they, they would push the envelope a little bit. And, and, uh, and then I can remember one particular camp. It was just a rough camp, and all the kids were struggling, and I was struggling. And I remember sitting on my bunk thinking, man, you remember how great it was when we only had five kids? I could get them everywhere in my Buick Century. Like, right? We didn't need to rent vans and, you know, and... And we all liked each other, and I wasn't going crazy. And, and, uh, and I was thinking about this this week because I was thinking about the fact that as human beings, we move through a whole variety of outlooks on life, right? Sometimes we stand at the present time dreaming about the future, a little discontent in the present, but dreaming about the future, like, oh, wouldn't it be great, right? We, we do that. And then sometimes we get to a moment when things are good and we stand at the present and we go, man, this is great. I don't want anything to mess this up. I don't want anything to mess it up. I remembered, like, I loved when our kids were two years old. I don't know why, but I just loved the age of two years old, right? And, I mean, it was just great. And I kind of grieved when they turned three because I loved two so much because it was like, don't mess with this box. I like that box. I felt comfortable in that box. They're great now, by the way. And, and uh, <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. You've always been great. So, <laughs> right? But there was an element of that, that, that box you get in. You're like, don't mess with it. And then we move through from that to sometimes another moment when we stand at the present looking at the past going, wasn't that great back there? We had it so good. Life was so much better back there. And, and in fact, I don't like where I'm at now. There, in the past, when we had five kids in the youth group, that was the glory days. And only if we could go back there, everything would be great, right? Isn't Egypt wonderful, right? We had onions by the Nile. It was a great place to hang, right? We do that. We look back to the past. And we go through that kind of thing all the time as human beings, right? We stand at a moment saying, man, if only we had this. Or we stand at a moment saying, no one mess with this. Or we stand at a moment going, that was better. And where it is today really stinks. And we go through this a lot, right? So it's a human experience. Now, where does that come from? What is it about us to where sometimes we stand at the present looking at the past and getting frustrated because things are changing, or we stand at the present trying to keep everybody out because we don't want anybody to mess with our box, or we stand at the present discouraged because if only we had this, or if only this were happening, then we would do, we'd be in such a better place. Where does that come from? Well, I was thinking about this this week because I think where it might come from, one possible answer to that is it comes from the fact that in our flesh we don't recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. I think that might be one reason why, one possible reason. That at any given moment, you can stand at that moment either resisting the change because I want to hold to the past or protecting the present because I don't want anything to mess with it or dreaming and being discouraged because this thing out here that I think should happen isn't happening. 
And I can battle discouragement. I can battle worry. I can battle kind of resistance and anger and all those things from those different worlds because I really don't in my heart believe Jesus is the Lord and that this moment in time, he's 100% in control. That he owns the vineyard and I'm the tenant. I don't own the vineyard. I think that can be part of it. But I've realized something. In serving Jesus, it's foolish to look back to the past and try to hold on to that. It's foolish to try to put a box around the present. And it's foolish to start dreaming and being discouraged about all the things you wish you had. Could you imagine if the early church did that, right? They got the disciples and they're following Jesus. They got about another 110 or so people that are hanging with them. So you got about 120 people total. And then, you know, Jesus dies and he, he sends into heaven and they've got this group of about 120 and everything's great. They got this 120. And then on the first day, on the day of Pentecost, we'll say the first day of the church, Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people get saved. Could you imagine that? That's, that's, like, that's only happened to me twice in my whole ministry. I'm teasing. <laughs> Kidding. 3,000 people get saved in one shot. Talk about messing with your moment. You went from 120 to 3,000. Could you imagine them at that moment going, wasn't it so cool when it was just 120 of us? And it was just the 12, well, minus Judas, just the 12 of us <laughs> hanging with Jesus. Wasn't that cool? Right? But they didn't do that. But they did do one thing, though, is they got into that 3,000, and they just kind of hung with those 3,000. And they weren't going anywhere with them. Right? They were living in the moment. Taking care of 3,000 people is a big job. And what did God say? You know what? I'm messing with you, man. No, you're not just keeping your little box of 3,000. I'm scattering you. It brings persecution. Boom, drives them out. But then you get the Apostle Paul who's saying, I want to go. And God says, yeah, you're going to go, but you've got to wait. You've got to go at my timetable. And yeah, I'm going to send you over there, but actually I'm sending you over there to get beat up. And yeah, I know you want to go over there, but you can't go over there now. And all of a sudden he's moving, but he's moving at God's timetable, not his timetable. And the reality is that the whole early church had to deal with the fact that Jesus is Lord and he's moving things. We don't grieve the past. We don't try to protect the present. We don't overdream for the future. We just realize Jesus is Lord and I'm going to walk in what he puts before me. No frameworks. He's the Lord. The reason why I'm saying that is that this is what this text is about. We get into Luke chapter 20. Luke has been showing us who Jesus is and, and we've begun to see that he's not only the Messiah, but we're going to see here in chapter 20, he's the Lord. And we're going to see what that means. We're going to see what that means. And when you begin to see what it means, it deals with the discontentment that comes when you're, when you're wanting something you don't have that you think you should have. Because there's a discontentment that comes. I wish I had this. And it's going to deal with the worry for those who are trying to protect the moment. And it's going to deal with the fear of those that are in a situation where they're looking back at the past saying the past was better. It's going to deal with all of that. Because what it's going to remind us is that Jesus is really the Lord. And the really good news is we're not. And that's a good place to be. It's a better place to be than trying to be the Lord. 
So we're going to see this. We'll walk through these 19 verses here. Here's the way they're broken down. You see it in your bulletin. The first thing we're going to see is the authority of Jesus in the world. He establishes his authority. The second thing we're going to see is the reign of Jesus over the world. So he has authority in the world, and he, because of that, he reigns over the world, which then brings us to the last thing that we'll see, the place of Jesus in your life, in my life. Because there's a place that he serves. Since he is the Lord and he reigns over all, that means that there should be a practical application for me and what I should do with that news. And that's what we're going to see today. And my heart for you is that you would shed the discouragement, shed the worry, shed the fear that comes from being discontent with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that you would be content with his lordship in your life. So let's look at it. Look at the first point here, the authority of Jesus in the world. Let's look at the first couple verses here of Luke 20. He says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? So, What's going on here? Jesus has entered Jerusalem. The people have praised him. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He then pronounces judgment upon Jerusalem, then goes in and cleans out the temple. He cleaned out the courtyard, the place that God wanted the Gentiles to come and worship him because he said this is what this place is for. It's for Gentiles to come. This is the house of prayer. This is the place where they should be coming to worship. And He cleans it out. And then Luke tells us he's in the temple teaching Now, he's in this temple area, he's teaching every day and preaching the gospel, so he's reminding people of the good news of the kingdom of God and all that's to take place. When a group of people come up to him, notice the group, it's a different group than we've had in the past. In the past, all of his conflicts have been with the Pharisees. Now we have the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Different group. Israel was divided within their religious groups, There were several different groups. I'm just going to highlight two of them. One was the Pharisees, and the other were were those that would be called the Sadducees, or the scribes, or, I mean, the priests, and those that were associated with the temple. Basically, what you had was this. You have the temple, and everyone knows the temple is central to, to Jerusalem, to Israel's worship. But Herod had helped complete the temple, and there were a lot of really conservative Jews that said, the temple was defiled. We're not going to worship there. We're going to stay in the synagogue until a pure temple gets developed. And those that hung out in the synagogues were called the Pharisees. They would, if we put them in our culture, we would say they were the conservatives, the really conservative purists. Now you had the priests and the elders. They hung out in the temple. Using our vernacular, we'd say they were a little more liberal. They, 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 they were okay with the element that Herod had helped complete this temple, and they worshiped there. The only thing that those two groups had in common was they hated Jesus. That's what they had in common. But this particular group is coming up to them. They're the ones in charge of the temple. They would be of the tribe of Levi, at least the priests were. You had the elders, which would have been the ruling council, the leaders that would have been like your governors or those that uh, uh, would have helped made decisions for the nation. They all would have centered themselves in Jerusalem, worshiped in the temple. Jesus is in their turf now, and he's teaching. And they come up to him and they say, what authority do you have to do this? 
Now let's put this in a little bit of a context. You can probably figure out their question, but we'll put it in a little bit of a context. Let's just say today I come over to your house. I just walk in your front door and I begin to throw things away. Right? I go through your video library. This is bad. This is bad. This is bad. This is bad. You shouldn't have a TV. And I smash your TV and I throw out your radio and then I gather your family around. I say, okay, now I'm going to tell you what the truth is. And I start teaching your children. I don't know if I'd get that far before you throw me out, right? Right? I mean, you say, what right do you have to come into my house and to clean it up and to start teaching my children? So Jesus comes and cleans out the temple. Then he's in there teaching every day. And they say, what right do you have to be here? What authority do you have? There's the question on the table. What authority does Jesus have to do what he did? So that's what Jesus is going to focus on. And he's going to focus on it from this way. In this one little interchange, he's going to show two things. Number one, that he has the authority to do this. And number two, they do not have the authority to do what they did. So in one little interchange, he's going to strip them of all of their authority and show that he has authority. How does he do this? So they ask the question, what authority do you have to do this? Who told you? Who, who bestowed this upon you? Now look at verse 3. And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Okay, you want to know what authority I have? I got a question for you. John the Baptist, good or bad? This is a brilliant question. Of course, kind of silly to say Jesus asked a brilliant question because all his questions are brilliant, right? Right, as if there's a bad one. But this is a great question, and here's the reason why it's a, a great question. John the Baptist came into Israel, and when he emerged onto the scene, he emerged as a prophet. Now, there's no qualification for a prophet in one sense. They're either sent from God or they're from the devil, one or the other. There's no middle ground. Israel knew this. Deuteronomy, all over the book of Deuteronomy, it says, listen, when prophets come, test them. If they're bad, kill them. If they're good, listen to them. But God would raise up prophets from anywhere. So John comes on as a prophet and is working like a prophet. He is proclaiming, he's calling the nation to repentance. People are coming out to be baptized by him. Even some Pharisees came out to be baptized by him. He refused to baptize them. But still, he's doing this work. Now the question is this. Was he a good prophet or a bad prophet? From God or from Satan? Now, what does Jesus gain by asking that question? Two things. The first thing he gains by asking that question is that he gets to clarify his authority. Let me show you how. John the Baptist came, but what was John the Baptist's message? Jesus walks on the scene and he says... Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's one coming that's greater than I. I'm, I. I can't even tie his sandals. Jesus comes. He points them out. He baptizes them. The Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. Everyone saw it. It's a beautiful moment. John's message was, Jesus is the Messiah. Here he is. Now, if you are a religious leader at that moment... And you say, Jesus is, or John is a good prophet. He's from God. Then what does that say about Jesus? It says he's the Messiah. Because if he's from God, if John is from God and John's message was Jesus is the man, 
then Jesus is the man. Okay, so what Jesus gains from asking that question is he gets to prove his authority. Now, what happens if they don't answer the question, which we know how the story ends, so we know they don't answer it. What happens there? There's something else that Jesus gets from answering this question. By, by, by forcing them to, re, to, to, to take a stand, it forces them into an interesting, uh, difficult situation. Why? The leaders of Israel had a job to do, and you want to know what their job was? To protect Israel from false prophets. So if a prophet comes and is not from God, they are responsible to do away with that prophet and kill him. And if they fail in their responsibility to get rid of the false prophet, they're not only disqualified, they have to be killed. Okay. So now, what did the religious leaders do when John came? A couple Pharisees went out to get baptized, then John like whooped up on them, right? Why are you here, you brood of vipers, right? He just like, he wouldn't baptize them. And at that moment, and you can look in Luke chapter 7, verse 29, there's a controversy. Basically, the religious leaders had rejected John as a prophet, but didn't say anything about it, refused to reference it. They left it alone, so they let him operate. Now, if they were to say at this moment, John is not from God, they disqualify themselves. If they say John is from God, they validate the ministry of Jesus. They are stuck. So what do they do? Look at verse 5. And they discussed it with one another. (laughs) I really would like to see a video of that. I'm really praying there's some kind of video library in heaven where you could actually see these moments. This is one of those ones where I'm picturing these guys going, oh, what do we do? What do we do? You know, like, we're stuck, right? I mean, notice them. If we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, (laughs) right? We're stuck. There is no good answer here. Now, they really don't believe that John was from God, but they really don't care about the law because they wouldn't stand up against the people, you know. So, so they are now stuck. At this moment, this whole discussion absolutely proves that they have no authority, that they're manipulators, that they're thieves, they're false shepherds. Jesus possesses the real authority. See, Jesus isn't dodging their question. Jesus is revealing their heart and his authority by asking this question. He's revealing the situation. He possesses the real authority. And so what do these guys do? Verse 7. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Right? We don't know. Right? Just play dumb. But really, they weren't playing dumb. They lied. They didn't believe John at all. It's clear that they didn't. They just were afraid of the people. They're afraid of losing authorities. They're manipulators. And at this one moment, Jesus revealed they possess no authority. There's a room, there's a whole courtyard full of people listening to this. And at this moment, he's just completely destroyed their authority. And he's established his own. Because here's what he's established I'm from God. The prophet has come. Scripture has been fulfilled. By pointing him to John the Baptist, 
he's pointing to the fact that Jesus is just not some self-proclaimed Messiah, that the forerunner did come. What Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 said would happen, happened. I am here. The word of God is fulfilled. John announced it. And all the people in the room would have known that because they believed that John was a prophet. And therefore, since he's the Messiah, Malachi 3 says that he's allowed to clean out the temple because Malachi 3 says that's exactly what the Messiah was going to do, was going to restore true worship back to Israel. And he's fulfilling it all right there. You see, Jesus has authority. He has authority in this world. Now, this leads us to this next parable because if he, since he has authority in the world, it means something. It doesn't just mean that he just is this authority in the world, kind of like a police officer. If he's not there, you can speed kind of a thing, right? The authority only exists if he's there. Jesus is going to say, I am, by the way, that wasn't advice. So you, those of you writing shouldn't be writing. Okay. He's saying, I not only possess authority in the world, I reign over the world. So hence this next parable, Okay. So let's look now at the reign of Jesus over the world. Look at verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Now there's something you need to know to help you understand the end of this story and how the people react to this story. Because there's reaction of the people in the temple and there's also reaction of the leaders. Everybody has a strong reaction to this story. This is not one of those cryptic parables. This is one of those parables that was like pretty clear what Jesus was saying. By talking about a vineyard, he's pulling an image out that Israel understood. Isaiah chapter 5 makes it really clear that um, the kingdom of God is this vineyard, and this vineyard is, you know, God is establishing his kingdom in Israel. And they understood the idea of a vineyard being connected to them and their heritage and who they are. This is why there's a very strong reaction at the end of the story. So just know this. When Jesus brings up a vineyard, he is bringing up a concept they would have understood. So now we have this vineyard. This guy has a vineyard. Here's what he does. He, 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 he plants the vineyard. He's going to go away on a journey, and so he brings in tenants. That would have been pretty common in that day. If you own some land to establish some you know, farming, some agriculture in that land, and then to bring in hired hands to work your farm for you. So these guys are hired hands. They are working the farm. The guy goes off on a journey. This is a typical Luke theme, that, 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 that the Messiah is doing something, and then he leaves, and people are to be stewards while he's gone. This theme keeps emerging over and over and over again, right? Because it's an important theme for us to remember. Right? Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's left something for us to do. Do it, and when he returns, he, he wants us to say, here, we were faithful with what you asked us to do. This theme keeps going over and over and over again. So again, he goes off, the tenants are working in the farm. Now, what happens? Verse 10. When the time came, obviously harvest time, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Okay, so what's going on here? So the guy owns the, the farm saying, hey, I want a little bit of fruit. So I'm sending my servants out. Goes out to the farm. These guys don't want to give the fruit back to the owner. 
So they beat the servant. Another one comes out, they beat that servant. Another one comes out, they beat that servant. On and on, right? They just keep beating up the servants. Now you get the imagery here, if you understand your Old Testament, that these servants are a picture of the prophets from God that had come and they'd called the nation back and called the nation to be fruitful. And what did the nation do? They beat up the prophets. They rejected the prophets. They hated the prophets, right? They don't want to do what God wants ultimately. They want to take God's vineyard and use it for their ends. So that's what's going on here. They beat these guys up. Israel did, did not want these prophets. So what happens? Verse 13. <clears throat> then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So the owner says, send my son. You get the imagery here. But what is their response? The key to this is what did the tenants do? When they saw the son, they said, hey, this is the heir. Let's do away with him so the vineyard can belong to us. Now in that day, here's the way that it worked. If I owned land, my son Andrew would be the rightful heir to the land. Sorry, girls, you're not getting it. Okay? You're going to have to marry some guy who's a rightful heir to his own land. Okay? I'll make sure he has a lot of land before I approve it. Okay? <clears throat> now, when I die, the son goes into Andrew's care. But I've hired Michael to take care of my land. So Michael's in charge of the land, and Michael, in his sinister plan, decides, I can do away with Andrew... And the land will go to me because, you see, the guys who farm the land, if there's no natural heirs, get the land. So you see what happens. The son comes and they say, this is cool. We can finally get it our way. Let's kill this guy. Now, Jesus is revealing what the real issue here is. The real issue is not ignorance as to who Jesus is. It's not ignorance as to who God is. It's not ignorance to, to anything like that. The issue here is we don't want to serve God as Lord. That's the issue. The issue is we want it our way. The issue is I want this church to be my way, not Jesus' way. I want it under my frameworks, not Jesus' frameworks. I want my family to be my way, not God's way. I don't really want the lordship of Jesus. That's what my flesh says. He's revealing this. He's saying, the issue here for you guys is that I'm the Lord, and you don't want me to be the Lord. You want to run the vineyard. You don't want to be a tenant. You want to be an owner. And so when I come, as long as I submit to you as the owner of the temple... You'll be all right with that. But the moment I exercise my will and I say, this is how it's going to be, you say, away with him. And this is true in all of our flesh, is it not? Is it right? That's a good spot for an amen, right? It's okay to be humble, right? right? It's true for all of us. It's true in little minute ways, and it's true in big ways. Struggle with it nonstop. It's so easy for me to be to stand in the present and be discontent because I think this is how this should be. It's so easy for me to stand in the present and worry that my little box is going to get destroyed. 
And it's so easy to stand in the present and venerate the past and say, things were way better back there, and the way it is now, I just don't like the way it's going. It's so easy to stand at these moments and say, this is how it should be. You see, I own the vineyard. Right? Isn't that true? Discouragement, worry, and fear are driven because we're trying to act like we own the vineyard. That's the stem of it. He's saying to them, you guys, the issue here is not that you're ignorant of me. The issue is that you won't submit to me. You won't let me, you won't acknowledge me to be the Lord of the vineyard. And in fact, when I exercise my lordship and I clean out the temple and I do all of this stuff, what is your first thought? Let's kill this guy. Because I don't want you as Lord of the vineyard. I want to own the vineyard. See, that's the issue here. The tenants in the story then want to kill the son. And so Jesus is saying this. This death that's about to happen in a few days is not because you don't know who I am. It's because you know who I am. <laughs> and you know that I'm the Lord. And you won't submit to me as Lord. And every time I box you into a corner and show you my lordship, show you my wisdom, show you my glory, your first response is to resist it instead of to submit to it. So, let's read on. Now, here's where the story gets really crazy. Let's read on. He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? All right, they've just killed the son. What's going to happen? Notice, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. What's happening here? This vineyard, this thing, yeah, I think they understood full well what he meant. It's clear. The text will tell us they understood what he meant. The very kingdom of God that you're trying to control and manipulate, that you think you're in charge of, you're going to lose. I'm taking it away from you. Your whole heritage, all this stuff that you have, your identity being a Jew and running Israel and being, you know, having the kingdom of God here, it's gone. And not only that, you're going to die. You're going to suffer. I'm going to punish you. So you lose the kingdom and you suffer at the hands of the, of the owner of the vineyard. And they say, no way. May it never be. It's a strong phrase is what they're saying. They're saying, no. Right? They had an emotional reaction to this. We will not lose the kingdom. Why? Because they think they're the owners of the kingdom already. We're not going to lose this. This is ours. The kingdom of God belongs to us. My framework's the way I want to do it. That's what rules the day. So they're holding on to it. And so they react. Why? <clears throat> Four reasons why they reacted. They didn't want the will of the Father. Right? God was establishing his kingdom his way. Not their kingdom their way. Right? God is not the, the supernatural power to give us what our will all the time. God's establishing his kingdom and he calls us to be part of it. And he blesses us richly. It's a great place to be. But it's his kingdom, his way. But they didn't want the will of the Father. It's pretty clear that they didn't have a love for the nations because they had taken the place that was designed to be for the nations of the world and they filled it up with their own stuff. And God made it so clear that he wanted to bless the nations, that he wanted to pull people from every tribe and tongue to be part of his kingdom. And I'm glad he did. Well, I mean, we wouldn't be here today 
without that. They did not submit, third thing, they didn't submit to Jesus as Lord. He's the one. When he came and spoke, they should be saying, yes, Lord. They didn't do that. And fourthly, they resented the change he brought because he drove them out of their comfort zone. One thing about Jesus is that he drives you out of your comfort zone. He drives you to the point where you will only be satisfied in him. Isn't that a great thing? He drives you to that point. I'll be honest with you, I was really like emotionally getting tied into going to 70 degree weather last week. You know, like emotion. I had a lot of emotion going in that direction. And that morning when I woke up and the place was covered with ice and it was cold and that ice thing hit me on the head, I remembered Luke 17, 32 or 34 when Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Don't love this world. She did, and it wasn't good, right? It's all about Jesus. It's not about the weather. You see, but it's easy to resent the change. It's easy to say, great, I flew all the way down here, and I thought it would be warm, and now it's not warm, and now it's cold and ice here. Well, I might as well not have left, right? It'd be easy just to start grumbling like that. I never did that. <laughs> all right, I need to repent for a moment here. <laughs> no. Right? It's easy to do that, and you have to realize, Jesus is Lord. I want to be satisfied in him. But they wouldn't do that. As a result, when Jesus was moving, they resented his movements. They resented his work because he wasn't pushing them in the direction that they wanted to go. So he says, your heritage, everything you stand for will be taken away from you, and destruction will come. And the people said, no. Now, there the authority of Jesus. He has it in the world. He proved it. He's the anointed one. Therefore, he reigns over the world. Let's look at our last point quickly here. What does that mean for us then in our lives? What's the application? Well, here we have the place of Jesus in our lives. He has authority in the world. He reigns over the world. Therefore, he's got a place in your life. What is the place in your life? Look at verse 17. It's so important to catch the, how Luke records this. But he looked directly at them and said... What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now notice 17. He looked directly at them. They just said, no way. We're not going to lose the kingdom. No way. And then Jesus looked directly at them. I just cannot imagine what that must have felt like. right? Because when he's pointing that out, it's it's like that parent stare, you know? You just kind of stare down your kids like, okay, right? He's directly, here's the application. And then he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. Why is that important? So important to remember the context. What happened in chapter 19? He's riding into Jerusalem. What are they singing? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Any guess as to where that psalm is from? Psalm 118. Jesus now brings them back to the very song that they were just singing about him. They just said, this song is about you. So Jesus says, okay, you know that song you were singing? Let's go to the next verse. What do you think it means? Right? Because you know that they probably sung the whole song. And one of the lyrics of the song is, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus is saying, now think about that for a minute. What do you think that means? You sung it. What do you think it means? Well, 
Jesus is now going to explain it, which is so cool. We have Jesus teaching Psalm 118. Here's what he says, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He says, you know, when you called me the fulfillment of this psalm, I'm that cornerstone. Now, the good news is this. If you fall on me, you'll be broken. But if I fall on you, you will be crushed. Now, what's the difference? I'm going to give you what I think it means. You could debate it, but I think what it means is this. If I come to Christ as Lord, and I fall upon that, I fall upon that, it will break me of my frameworks. It will crush me or break me open, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing that I can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, man, I am holding on to things. I, I'm, I'm standing at the present, venerating the past, thinking that was the glory days. But you know what? That's not the point. The point is I'm here now. I'm falling on your lordship. I'm standing at the present, and I'm just kind of wanting to protect it. I don't want anything to mess with it. And, and that's become an idol in my life. And so I'm just going to fall on this cornerstone and be broken. Or I'm standing at the present and, and I'm not getting the future that I thought I should get. I had this vision of what it should look like. I had this vision of what my life should be like. I had this vision of what everything should be like. And some reason, I'm not getting there and I see all these people and I think they're getting in the way of it or this and that. And, and all, I see all, I'm just going to fall on you, man. You're the Lord. Break me. Just going to fall and be broken on you. Because, Jesus says, if you stand there and you're trying to just resist the change because you're holding on to the past or protect the present or be discouraged and fight for the future, the lordship of Jesus will crush you. And that's not a good place to be. Submit to his lordship and be set free from the angst, the worry, the fear, the anger, the discouragement. Don't resist it and go through life with all of that just only at the end to face the consequences that you never, ever followed Jesus as Lord. When Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? You know what? You're, I'm not your Lord unless you see me as Lord, which means you're going to see me as Lord every moment. So the good news of the cornerstone is this. I'm getting up this morning, preaching, knowing this sermon, knowing it's on my brain, then we're driving, and I keep getting red lights, and I'm getting here late, and I'm starting to get discouraged, and I'm starting to get frustrated, and I have to at this moment say, Jesus, you're the Lord. You know where I'm supposed to be. How in the world could you preach that sermon and be getting so tense about these red lights, right? Fall on that rock, Leston. Fall on it now. Be broken. Jesus, you're the Lord. You know when I'll get there. You'll know, and it will be fine. You're the Lord. I will submit. I will humble myself. You see, that's the application. So if the Lord brings change in my life, I'll embrace it. If the Lord messes with my moment, I'll embrace it. If the Lord holds me back from all the things that I think I should have, I'll embrace it. If I'm willing, when the angst comes up and the worry comes up, to fall on the rock. So know this. 
You're going to have the angst. You're going to have the worry. You're going to be introduced to it in little ways when you drive home today. You're going to be introduced to it big ways when you go to the doctors. You're going to be introduced to it in small ways and big ways with your children, with your family, as your kids grow. Things don't go the way that you think they're going to go with your retirement accounts, with whatever. All kinds of things are going to happen. And the question is this. When the angst and the worry and the anger and the fear and the frustration emerges, will you fall on the rock and say, Jesus, your Lord? Or will you fight it until you're crushed? That's the question. Jesus is Lord, and we're not, and that's the good news. So here's the conclusion. Let's kind of wrap this up here. What agenda do you have for your life? What agenda do you have for the church, for your family, for your marriage, for your children, for your spouse, for your career? for your time, for your money, for your status in life? Where are the ways that you're standing in the present dreaming and thinking everything should be different and, you're, and, and yet you feel like things are in the way and you're not getting there? Where are areas where you put boxes up and you say, no, no one mess with this? And Where are areas where you're grieving the past and you're venerating that as being better than the present? Wherever those areas are, and we have them all, if we're honest, right? We have them all. The question is this, will you bring those to the cornerstone and fall upon him? And, and, and just say three words, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He owns the vineyard. That's really good news. You're in better hands than if you controlled it. Could you imagine if I was Lord? <laughs> That'd be horrible, right? It'd be horrible for everybody. I'm glad Jesus is Lord. And so fall upon him because it doesn't work to try to control it. And in the end, there's a great risk because I cannot imagine hearing those words. You called me Lord, but you didn't mean it. You called me Lord, but you acted like you owned it. You sung that I was the Lord, but you went through life trying to control and manipulate and you got angry and frustrated and you hurt people and you broke fellowship and you did all kinds of things because you wanted your agenda. Don't call me Lord and ignore what I say. I can't imagine hearing those words. And so I want to fall on the rock at every stoplight that frustrates me. I want to fall on the rock at every outcome that doesn't happen the way that it happens. I want to fall on the rock when my dreams don't get fulfilled. I want to fall on the rock when I feel risk and fear. I just want to fall on that rock all the time and be broken so that I would acknowledge Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together. And let's just pray, because not only do we need to acknowledge him as Lord, but there's another reality. If we do this, and when we do this, we can see what God is doing in the world. When we put our agenda ahead of God's, then we only see what we want, and we miss what he's doing. So let's just submit and see what he's doing. Let's pray together. Father, May we fall upon you this morning. Each one of us <clears throat> has come in here with agendas and frameworks, areas where we're trying to hold on to the past, and you've moved us past that. Areas where we're trying to protect the present, but you're scattering. And areas where we're discontent because we're not getting the future we think we have. But you're leading us. Lord, may we fall upon you today 
to be broken of that agenda, that we might find life and freedom and joy and peace. Lord, that is what makes for peace in this world. Peace will not come if no one sins around me. Peace will not come if everyone does what I want them to do. Peace comes when I submit to your lordship. And Lord, may we then see what you are doing in all these circumstances. May we see how you are at work when our dreams go left unfulfilled, when people hurt us and let us down, when things change and the past disappears, when we face transitions in life that aren't always pleasant, when we face death and life, when we face hurt and heartache. And I just pray, God, that we would see that you are the Lord at each one of those moments. May we find the peace and the stability that comes from falling upon that rock and finding our life and our hope in you. Thank you for the joy that comes from being in you, through you, and having you lead us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.